Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hey there, Behind the Money listeners. It's your host, Michaela Tendera. Over the next few weeks, you're going to find something a little different in your feeds on Wednesdays. Behind the Money is running a special three-part miniseries called The Russian Banker. It's co-hosted by my colleagues, Courtney Weaver and Stefania Palma. And you'll get to join them as they try to uncover the truth about a man named Sergei Leontiev. I'll be back to hosting later in September. But until then, I hope you enjoy this fascinating series. My name is Sergei Leontiev, and I'm a married citizen of Russia. I'm submitting this declaration in support of my application for asylum. This is the asylum application that Sergei Leontiev submitted to the U.S. in 2022. Sergei had been this big Russian banker, Russian businessman. He liked to see himself as a kind of Steve Jobs or Warren Buffett. But then it all fell apart. I'm currently being politically prosecuted by the Putin regime and the Russian government based on my association with Alexei Navalny, the leader of the pro-democracy opposition movement in Russia. Sergei fled to the West and ultimately landed in New York, and that's where he applied for asylum. As a direct retribution for my political positions, the banking and financial business that I built with my colleagues over the course of the decades, and withdrew to manage assets in excess of US 750 million, was legally seized and appropriated by the corrupt Russian officials. The U.S. bought his story, and a judge in New York said that Sergei had, quote, a well-founded fear of future persecution in Russia. The ruling also said that his cooperation with Navalny was a key reason why the Russian authorities were so angry with Sergei. But I spent years reporting in Russia, and I couldn't help but wonder if this is the whole story. In Russia, it's sometimes hard to tell who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And there's this real gray area in between. And that's where Sergei's story exists. Is Sergei a victim of Putin's authoritarian regime? Or was he the mastermind behind an enormous fraud that ultimately led to the loss of millions for his customers? Could he actually be both? From the Financial Times, this is The Russian Banker. Part one, The Raid. My name is Courtney Weaver. And I'm Stefania Palma. We're both reporters at the Financial Times. I was part of the investigation into Wirecards, which led to the collapse of a multi-billion dollar German company. And I was based in Moscow for six years. So I know the country's business and politics inside out. Let's start with Sergei's version of events. This is what he told the immigration courts. 
Sergei had been a banker for years, at a time when there was a lot of pressure to fall in line with the Russian government. The moment everything came crashing down for Sergei came in August 2015. Sergei had started out the day at home. He likes to kind of keep vampire hours. He would come into the office after lunchtime and stay there till two in the morning. So he was still at home when he got the call that there were paramilitary troops inside the bank. A lot of people started calling me and telling me that that I don't come because the office is occupied by militia and there are people with machine guns everywhere. He still gets in his car. He still goes down to the center of the city where the office is. But instead of going inside the bank, he decides to camp out at a Starbucks nearby. And he just starts taking meetings, trying to kind of create the impression that it's business as usual so that there's not a run on the bank and people don't start rushing to take their deposits out. And... My assistant asked me if I'm going to skip all the meetings. I said, why? Just let people come here to the Starbucks. There were like at one moment more like 40 people from, <laughs> from the bank. While he's at the Starbucks, the paramilitary troops are raiding the bank's office, looking through documentation. He has no control over the situation. I didn't know anything, actually. They, they, they informed nobody. The troops had stormed the bank on Russian authorities' orders. And this came after the central bank had started an investigation and said it had found evidence of fraud. And these paramilitary troops are rifling through papers, they're looking through documents, and they're basically paving the way for Russian authorities to seize the bank, this bank that Sergei has spent his whole adult life creating. And it finally dawns on him that this, almost like his his child, his baby, that he's put all his time and effort into is about to be taken away from him. That's that's it. So this this stage of your life is over. You have to to start all over again. So Sergei's working at Starbucks and he gets a call from his business partner saying that one of the biggest clients at the bank wants to meet with him and he's not happy. Sergei shows up at the client's office and he's, according to Sergei, very upset. He's worried not just about his own money that's with the bank, but with his partner's money as well. And then he gets on the phone in front of Sergei and just starts calling people, suggesting that these people are very powerful within the Russian political system and that Sergei is in big trouble. So Sergei says he's going to work on it, but he doesn't. Instead, he goes home, he packs his suitcase and flees Russia, never to return. Six and a half years later, the U.S. grants Sergei Leontiev asylum and all the protections that affords. We needed to understand how Sergei went from a Soviet childhood to a banking entrepreneur to living in exile in New York. We wanted to figure out how he had built this huge bank and then lost it all overnight. So we have to go back to the beginning of his story. It was an interesting life, actually. So Sergei had a pretty unusual childhood His father worked for the Soviet Foreign Ministry, so he grew up abroad, kind of straddled between these two worlds, Soviet Russia and European countries like Austria and the UK. And because of that, he kind of never really conformed the way a lot of other kids who had only been raised in the Soviet Union conformed. This is an important point to truly understand, Sergei. In his asylum application, he describes how he had become enamored with the West because it was a market where uh, he would have been able to run the business as he liked instead of having to conform to business regulations. 
you know, it was a time of great conformity, and Sergei did not conform by any stretch. Teachers would assign homework for the class, but instead of doing the reading, Sergei would come in and get in an argument with the teacher about the subject of the reading, which he hadn't actually read. And some teachers didn't like it in Russian schools at all. I think some teachers in American schools wouldn't like it, I think. <laughs> yeah. He gets into one of the best universities in Moscow and decides to study international relations. But he's really more interested in the business side. With the opening up of the Soviet Union, a lot of people are seeing opportunities, and Sergei is one of those people. So he finds a kid in his class with a photographic memory. I was always envying him because I have no memory. And he gets this kid to memorize all the new regulations and then puts up flyers all around the campus saying, come learn about the new business regulations. People pay to come to this lecture, and he gives the kid a small cut of the profit, and the rest he keeps for himself. He was lecturing them, and I was taking money. And for him, this was kind of the start of his entrepreneurial streak. He had an import-export business, a travel agency, some other ventures, and he's basically just figuring it out as he goes along, just coming up with all these new ideas. I was disrupting everything, a kind of disruptive guy. So I find small tricks, like with this guy whom I put for these lectures, and he was happy because he started earning money for the first time in his life. I was finding the way how to, how to trick people. He goes along pretending to be this kind of successful Russian businessman until he actually becomes the real thing. And then in 93, we, we created the bank and we started kind of doing real business ourselves. Sergei got this idea to start a bank from his childhood best friend, who's a lawyer at the time. And together they buy an existing bank and eventually grow it into a group that will ultimately become ProBusiness Bank. ProBusiness Bank grows big. Eventually, it's one of the top 50 banks in Russia as part of a bigger banking group called Life. It has over 700 branches across the country. And as Sergei tells it, it could have been a leader in the industry. I mean, if not for Putin. Sergei blames Vladimir Putin for the raid and the seizure of the license of a company that he spent his entire life building up. As Sergei tells it, his entrepreneurial efforts attracted too much attention and put a target on his back. Which brings us back to the raid and Sergei fleeing Russia. The raid came at a time when the Russian Central Bank was seizing licenses from banks across the entire country as part of what was seen as a broader cleanup of corrupt institutions in the sector. But according to Sergei, the central bankers were the corrupt ones. Sergei and others saw the Russian authorities doing with the Russian banking sector what they had done with other industries in Russia. The oil and gas industry, the media industry. Basically, the state taking it over and going after anyone who stood in their way. Sergei says Russian officials began to make an example of him. They tracked him down across multiple jurisdictions, going after his assets in different countries, and requested that foreign law enforcement agencies arrest him on the spot. Increasingly, he started to feel like he was backed into a corner, that not just his assets were in danger, but his life. And he and his lawyers, they decide to use a different weapon to fight back. They decide to apply for U.S. asylum. The lawyers were telling me, look, your L1 visa and stuff like that, that's not the right weapon against these guys. They're having tanks and you're just machine gun. And you need to change the weapon. 
Acquiring asylum status in the U.S. is like winning a golden ticket. For asylum applicants, it really does mark a complete turning point in their life, because finally the U.S. has decided to provide them with a safe harbor. There are thousands of applicants who are very often running away from extremely dangerous situations back in their home countries. About one in four applicants from countries like Honduras, Colombia, and Haiti were granted asylum in the U.S. in 2022. But Russians had much higher odds. 88%, nearly all applicants, received asylum. Experts we spoke to cited a few reasons for that. Distance can complicate the journey to the U.S. So Russians who do succeed tend to have good documentation for their alleged persecution. And many of them tend to be better funded and connected, which makes it easier for them to hire lawyers. That appears to be part of what helped Sergei. His money and connections may have tilted the odds in his favor. One of his first stops was to Kyle Parker. Kyle's been working on Capitol Hill for years and had a lot of experience with cases like Sergei's. To Kyle, Sergei's story sounded like the stories of many other Russians who had been targeted. You're successful in Russia at the time and, you know, you capture the attention of the thieves and crooks. And then they use the vast powers of this administrative leviathan to to destroy you. Sergei's lobbying in Washington worked. Influential people in the U.S., like Elliot Engel, the then head of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, wrote statements in support of Sergei. In his application, Sergei says there are several reasons why he became a target of Vladimir Putin. One example he gives is this 2002 summit between George W. Bush and Putin, where Sergei says he spoke to Bush for too long. Sergei says the U.S. embassy invited him to speak. But according to his asylum application, the Kremlin wanted someone else, one of Putin's allies. Ultimately, Sergei got the speaking role and made a presentation to Bush and to Putin. The application says he knew Putin was upset with him because he intentionally mispronounced pro-business fake's name at the event. After Putin spoke, Bush then asked some questions, and Sergei spent a few minutes responding, which apparently upset the Russian delegation. Everybody was just like, why did you start a conversation with the president of the United States of America? And then I just, what, what's about it? After the event, Sergei says he was admonished and told to, quote, behave better. But he says he kept going to U.S. embassy events. Perhaps the crux of the asylum application is Sergei's explanation of how he became way too close to Alexei Navalny, the key opposition figure in Russian politics. As you'll hear, whether his connection to Navalny was as he described will become key. The more we reported the story, the more Sergei's version of events kept changing. And it was just this kind of microcosm of this bigger story about Russia and how you find the truth. Who is the most reliable narrator? You would think that if your story was being questioned in all these different legal jurisdictions, you'd have kind of an airtight version of events about the details of where you were, what you were doing. But every time we questioned Sergei about these kind of key incidents in the raid and what had happened, the details kept changing. One time he'd say, I was in the car. Another time he would say, I was at home, I was asleep, or I was awake. At one point, we asked him what he'd ordered at Starbucks while the raid was happening. 
And he had a surprising answer. I'm such a person that for me, it's much easier to invent something than, than remember all the small details. I usually, it's not, not important, which is not important. I usually put it out of my, my memory. So stuff like that, I can invent something for you specifically now, but, but honestly, I don't remember. We pursued this story because Sergei's team had reached out to us. They emailed us. They wanted his story told. They thought it would help him build an investment fund in the U.S. and get his assets unfrozen. But the more we dug, the more an alternative theory emerged. We found foreign investors who were concerned about the bank, even before the stuff with Navalny took place. And we found a former executive who said the bank's raid wasn't because of Bush and it wasn't because of Navalny. It was because of a fraud at the bank. And he was the one who blew the whistle. People were not stupid. They didn't want to ask because they knew. But they, they understood that something was going wrong. That's next time. I'm Courtney Weaver. And I'm Stefania Palma. We reported this series, and it was produced by The Financial Times and Rhyme Media. At Rhyme Media, the producers are Lydia McMullen-Laird and Jennifer Siegel. Dan Bobkoff is the executive producer. At The Financial Times, the executive producers are Cheryl Bromley and Topher Forges. Sound mixing by Bryn Turner. Special thanks to Peter Spiegel, Mark Filipino, Alistair Mackey, Persis Love, Josh Gabbard-Doyon, and Tanya Cherkis. 